A very good evening to you, to our Wednesday evening talk. Let us begin now with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, a very uh, good evening to you. And this is part two of our talk on signs and symbols in the sacred liturgy. And I mentioned to you the work of scholars such as Karl Barth, who want to sort of rediscover this aspect of liturgy, the, the particularly the, the allegorical, why that has a place. Now, I mentioned to you, among other sources, uh, this book featuring in the collection of conference papers, The Genius uh, of the Roman Rites, rather his paper on the mystical meaning of the Mass. This is one of his books on the Mass seen as a forest of symbols. Indeed, the Mass does have a forest, as I said, like uh, a medieval cathedral with so many things. And you see in the Mass, that's the Psalm uh, High Mass. The, in fact, that looks like a pontifical Mass. We have lots of signs and symbols and clergy surrounding the elevated host. And that in time, various uh, objects, they may have lost a certain practical use, but they, they gained more deeper spiritual relevance and spiritual meanings. And that looking at the, the Holy Mass in, um, in the Middle Ages, it was uh, seen primarily as uh, against the background of our Lord's life, that ceremonies and words um, of the liturgy and of the Mass in particular. And in fact, the understanding of the Mass, as we had seen, um, was based on how sacred scripture was understood and the senses of sacred scripture, the literal, the historical and the spiritual, which included the allegorical, understanding. And an example of Jonah in the whale. Jonah's hidden in the whale. It's understood as our Lord hidden in the tomb and coming out of the tomb of the at the, re the resurrection. So Jonah's seen as a tipos, a type um, of Christ. Um, and then of course we have our iceberg there that there's a lot more hidden beneath the scriptures than meets the eye. And the same principle was applied to the, to the liturgy. That the liturgy is an uh, interpretation of the liturgy is inexhaustible. And we find the, you know, the spiritual interpretation. We find it in St Paul's letter there to the Galatians, and uh, and also, for example, in the Book of the Apocalypse, we have Our Lady there. She's seen as the woman that escaped. Um, from the devil, from the serpent, um, and giving wings to help her fly. And the artist even paints 
the wings in the portrait, the painting rather, to show the connection between Our Lady and the woman in the apocalypse. And I mentioned to you that we find the roots, of course, of this allegorical spiritual interpretation, mystical interpretation of the liturgy in the interpretation of scripture and in the scriptures themselves. And the understanding of this um, spiritual interpretation we find also in the fathers of the church. There's a connection between the growth of the of patristic theology, as some one scholar says, the organic development of patristic theology, and also parallel and with the development of the liturgy. And one of those church fathers there, we talked about St. Cyril, Jerusalem, and Isidore of Seville, who, who interpreted um, the gestures, the words, the vestment symbols uh, in an allegorical manner for those uh, who were becoming Christians or who had already uh, been baptised. And that the air, the if you like, of this patristic tradition was a Malarius uh, of Metz, a pupil of uh, Alcuin of York. And uh, he had a tremendous influence throughout the Middle Ages. And I mentioned to you that, that, that um, those of you like a many crisis, according to Joseph Jungmann, the liturgist, um, that, that individuals like St. Albert the Great, that great Dominican who taught St. Thomas Aquinas, he, was in this, he wasn't um, he was opposed in many ways to the allegorical method, but to more literal understanding of liturgy. But of course his, his pupil, Thomas Aquinas, said yes, there is a spiritual understanding of the liturgy. And the figure par excellence, that's Job, and we talked about Job, in Amalarius of Metz. But the figure par excellence is William Durandus. So that's where we're up to now uh, in our conference. Um, and really we see the, the apogee, the top, if you like, um, the climax in the sense of, of the allegorical interpretation and, and understanding of liturgy we find in the work of William Durandist, who was a liturgiologist. He was also a canonist, expert in canon law, and he was a bishop of Mend. And I cited last time Thibaut who is a proponent of the allegorical use of allegory in the liturgy of rediscovering this element. dates right back to artistic times and before. And he says, Thibaudou says, that the best known and widely read liturgical expositor of the late Middle Ages was indeed um, Durandus. And in his Rationale Divinorum Officiorum, we're talking about the end, towards the end of the 13th century, and its first redaction was in 1286, and then it was revised until 1296. And um, one scholar indicates, you know, just to give you an idea of how popular this work was, and of course we've lost lots of manuscripts in the course of history, where you know, 
maybe the Reformation, maybe one reason why the destruction of the monasteries and so forth. But from what we know, we can get some idea about the popularity of the work. It's quite clear. Um, in the later Middle Ages, we've got there exist uh, 300 extant manuscripts of the work. In Mainz in the 1459, um, it's interesting, someone has indicated that it's the fourth book that was printed in movable type, and it was the first by a post-biblical author. Um, there were over 100 printed editions of the work between uh, 1459 and 1631. So it's quite astonishing the influence that William Durandus had um, on the interpretation of the liturgy. He states that, um, of course, it was written for a clerical audience specifically, but with increase of print and what have you, and also there were various translations later into various vernacular languages. It indicates that lay people too were getting interested in William Durandus. But anyway, Durandus himself states the purpose for his work. He says, the priests and uh, prelates of the church to whom it has been given um, to know these mysteries, um, they are the bearers and dispensers of the sacraments. And they've got to understand these sacraments. And shine with the virtues, says Durandus, they represent so that through their light, others may be similarly uh, illumined. There's another passage, um, too, connected with this about um, the purpose of his last treatise. He says, I, William of the Holy Church of Mend, the said bishop, by the patience of God alone, knocking, shall knock at the door. If by chance the key of David would vouchsafe to open, that the king may introduce me, that's this, Christ or God, may introduce me into the wine cellar, in which the heavenly model may be shown to me, that was shown to Moses on the mountain. To what extent from the individual things and ornaments that exist in the ecclesiastical offices, I may succeed in making known clearly and openly what they should signify and represent, to examine and state the reasons by him who makes the tongues of infants eloquent, as a quotation from Book of Wisdom, the spirit of whom breathes where he will, dividing to everyone according as he will, to the praise of the Holy Trinity. Since, uh, sorry, William Durandus, of course, he does use literal understanding of the liturgy too, but as I said, allegorical is very important and he weaves all this together and he discusses just about everything, prayers, gestures, ceremonies, and also the church building itself. And for, for Durandus, the church building, um, the church building there, cathedral, uh, the church building represented Christ. 
as did the altar, which was at the very heart of the, the church. Um, and also the door is open. I am the door, our Lord said, you know, for the faithful to enter into. And he said that the, the lights, that the, the interior of the church was, was illuminated by, by light. And that symbolizes Christ and the Holy Spirit. Um, and, of course, the uh, cruciform uh, shape of the church too, Christ on the cross. Um, another uh, example from the Rationale is um, William's commentary on the various liturgical vestments which the priest wore. Now, I mentioned to you that the literal sense wasn't entirely given up. There was space for that, but also it was taken further and deeper in the allegorical interpretation. And um, uh, Durandus talks about putting on of the vestments, you know, putting on the armors, tying the strings and so forth. And then um, he goes deeper um, the Amos symbolizes uh, Christ's Godhead, hid in flesh, because it's, it was like um, a cloud that overshadowed the head in various scriptural texts. He talks about the alb, which the, the priest um, puts on to cover his, his cassock, his clothes, his, his habit. And that alb is white. That signifies the transfiguration and the new garment which is put on, which you're given, of course, a white garment at your baptism. It's still the case today. So that symbolizes a new garment that you put on, the new man in Christ. The stole which is crossed over um, from right to, to left, crossed over the breast, which we can see there, the second figure, uh, in our illustration. That signifies the obedience of Christ whose obedience, of course, was unto death, death on a cross. And the maniple, which we spoke about at length in another conference, um, that was uh, the reward in heaven, which um, we may have too, as well as carrying the, 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 the toil and the tears of the priesthood. It reminds that, that through this came the heaven, the heaven, our heavenly, it comes our heavenly reward, and also it was, it was pointed, um, it was made an allegory of Christ, also enjoying his reward in heaven, you know, the ascension and what have you, the glorification of our Lord. So you had all these literal and well, especially Christological, Christ-centered interpretations, um, of which the best, the Durandus explanation, the vestments is. Um, a good example. And also, he, he um, it's interesting, um, he goes on to look at the vestments pointing towards the passion of Christ. That's another layer of meaning. The veil, uh, the amus was supposed to represent the veil which was put in our Lord's face. The alp was the robe that Herod put on him. The cincture was the whip which our Lord was scourged. 
the manabu was the rope that tied his hands and so on and so forth and uh, as I said I'm hilarious he interpreted the Holy Mass uh, in view of the passion of Christ and that had a great influence on subsequent authors such as uh, Gerandus um, also the Memoria Passionis was applied to they said well, various parts of the Mass the canon for example uh, Durandus uh, speaks about the death of our Lord uh, on the cross and you may know that the Dominican rite the priest um, expands his hands out like in this form of a cross that was common in quite a quite a few medieval rites like the Seren rite uh, I think possibly in the old Carmelite rite the rite of the Holy Sepulchre certainly in the medieval pronunciation rite and that's an example yes symbol was was intended deliberately initially to to speak about uh, to illustrate Christ on the cross the priest at that moment would be uh, after the consecration would be looking at the the elements on the altar uh, that, that that his extension of his arm symbolized what was happening in the altar the representation of the sacrifice of Calvary and of course the priest is also in persona Christi the person of Christ um, during the, the Holy Mass and of course as I said there is ceremonies uh, they may have changed in the original meaning or the original historical meaning was kept but further meaning was added the meaning of the gestures was enriched throughout the centuries and the allegorical interpretation of this scripture uh, is certainly one of them well we can move along if you like a few more examples from Gerandus about the mass the silence of the priest after the Our Father represented signs of Christ in the tomb um, and uh, as our Lord you know um, the, the resurrection scene also uh, in the mass that the three days of our Lord in the tomb are signified by three signs of the cross as the priest makes actually makes it and with the particle of the sacred host over the chalice there's various interpretations for that and Joanda says that symbolizes the three days of our Lord in the tomb um, and that the, the tomb itself is symbolized by the cup of the chalice maybe this is why you know, we find in the pre-1955 Holy Week um, ceremonies the Holy Thursday uh, host two hosts are consecrated one for the priest the Holy Thursday at the Mass and then another particle another host for the priest to consecrate to consume on Good Friday and it wasn't carried in a ciborium as the mid ages grew a chalice started to be used one wonders whether could have pre of course that could maybe that predated Gerandus but you wonder if Gerandus had a certain 
influence in that. The chalice representing the tomb of Christ. And this chalice with the host in Holy Thursday was taken to what we call nowadays the altar of repose, which in a sense was a tomb, represented the Christ's tomb, as well as, if you like, nowadays people see it as like Christ in the garden, the night before his sacred passion and death. And it's uh, interesting, here we have, thanks to the Latimer Society photograph of the uh, solemn high mass, we have the priest there, behind him is the deacon, and behind him is a subdeacon holding the pattern in, the, in a humeral veil. Well, there's all sorts of interpretations given, uh, like the priest, of course, represents Christ, the deacon, the New Testament, he proclaims the gospel, uh, and the subdeacon represents the Old Testament. That's one of a number of interpretations. And Anderson indicates that the subdeacon shows the pattern, the white, the red pattern, which is concave. It's veiled, um, and um, it's uh, taken out, kissed by the priest. It's supposed to be that Christ is, is given as a sign of affection. The pattern is seen as a sign of our love. Um, And it's when the deacon uncovers the chalice and looked into it. This is like the angel rolling the stone from the tomb. I mean, of course, to some extent, if you like, there's a chronological sequence of the interpretation of the various stages of the Mass in terms of the life and passion of Christ. But also there was a sort of intermixture, if you like. It wasn't always entirely chronological. Um, well, he's a great figure, William Durandus. I'm going to translate the Rationale. Uh, there are well, certainly translations of the first book, and maybe that's in progress, and maybe they progress further. But um, it had such an important influence uh, in the Middle Ages. Another figure, well, as I said, the, the, the literal interpretation still existed and still used by William Durandus, despite the influence of the allegorical method. But one example is Floris of Lyon. Um, and he, comment, he commented on what was actually written down in the sacramentary, the words, he commented on the words. Amalanis wasn't really concerned about the words as such, but um, he, he was more interested in the actual rites that were performed and seen by the priests and faithful during the liturgy. Um, Florus tried to be strictly sort of um, literal. Um, that's just just to let you know that that, that, that the literal understanding, historical understanding of the words uh, still existed, but of course. The allegorical held sway throughout the allegorical interpretation held sway throughout the um, Middle Ages. So this is how things existed right up until, I suppose, the Council of Trent. 
And um, why did the allegorical interpretation of the liturgy sort of wane? Well, um, we had, of course, well, one reason that's been suggested is that the Protestants were very critical of, of such interpretations of the liturgy. And some Catholics then became even more wary of using the allegorical interpretations. Um, and then we had the growth further on of science, of rationalism, the so-called Enlightenment period, the development, scientific developments in the, uh, in the 16th century, 17th, 18th century, the so-called Enlightenment period, the, the um, uh, French Revolution, and so on and so forth. The sort of change in eventually, much later on, I must say, I don't know if this, certainly you do find the 18th century scholars who were beginning to look at the scriptures in a more literal, historical, historical, critical method, so it has to have its origins at that period. And therefore, they weren't really interested in sort of allegorical. Um, so that might be yes, a reason why the allegorical method of interpreting the scriptures sort of faded away. But it didn't fade away entirely. You can still see in popular literature and books um, this element of understanding the liturgy and sense of Christ's passion still there. Um, an example of this is in the introduction to the devout life by St. Francis de Sales. Here's a lovely painting of St. Francis, a much larger picture, uh, photographs taken by Father, Lord, Father Lou, uh, Lawrence Lou, who is a Dominican priest, a great photographer. And um, maybe doesn't mind me using this photograph. It's from the Oratory of Bologna. And in the introduction to the Divine Life, uh, Francis de Sales mentions the method of healing or participating in the, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And he, he does want the person to, to, to look carefully at what is going on at the altar, to prayerfully follow but also especially from the Creed onwards from that time, that second part of the Mass, um, which is called the Mass of the Faithful. Um, he, he asks the person to meditate, to think about the passion and death of our Lord in particular. And as I said, it makes sense, theologically speaking, because we have a note of the representation of Calvary. So it doesn't doubt um, entirely. And what about um, interpretation from you know the allegorical and the, the the growth in the more literal understanding of the literature? Um, well, I should mention, especially in regards to the allegorical understanding, the influence of Jean-Jacques Ollier, a great figure in France, a founder of the seminary Saint-Sulpice, who wanted to train good priests for the Catholic Church, men who were formed, really well formed, and this was part of the reforms of the Council 
of Trent and um, he obviously wanted the priest to have a good understanding of the holy sacrifice of the mass and by that they could also um, teach uh, the flock in you know, the parishes as a matter of fact um, he published in 1657 um, this is mentioned by Claude Bart in his article Olier published the Explication des Ceremonies de la Grande Messe des Paros selon le Sage Romain. If you like the explanation of the ceremonies of the Great Mass, the High Mass of the parish, according to the, the, use, the Roman usage, the Roman writing, uh, in other words. Uh, the original manuscript, Bart indicates, um, it consists of notes that only I made for his classes when he's training, when he's yeah training the clerics at Saint Sulpice. Um, although other professors too um, taught the students. But nevertheless, it's, it's interesting because um, uh, you can still see the sort of mystical interpretation in in the liturgy. So, so it's, there was still like with Saint Francis de Sales, there was still some interest in it despite the growth of the, the historical critical method, um, perhaps maybe a little bit later on, or at the same time, the, the growth of rationalism, the so-called enlightenment. And Olier actually, he uses images employed uh, many times in, in the, the liturgical commentaries of the past. He says the angel that is to say Christ has arrived, he's standing before the altar and is in the presence of the church um, with a golden thurible, that is his immaculate body, uh, filled with fire, that is to say love. And he receives from the faithful many gifts of incense, that is prayers, in order to offer them, that is to present them to the Father together with the prayers of the angels. Actually, uh, but because this quote, this quote is, is not from Olia but from Girandus. Now that quote is, is connected with the use of incense, incenting the oblata and the altar, the bread and the wine, which is become the body and blood of Christ, the incensation at the, the um, offertory. So Bart says, just compare that, what Girandus has said, compare it to what Olia says. You see that. Um, Olier is familiar with the, the tradition of allegorical explanation. Olier says, and it's rather beautiful actually, that the grains of the incense cast three times on the fire, the priest puts three spoonfuls of incense in the thurible. That signifies the faithful of the church uh, cast into the burning furnace of the heart of God, where they pour out praises and are consumed in him by Jesus Christ. The body of the thurible which contains the burning coals that represents the humanity of Jesus Christ, whose depths are in glory and consumed in the divine fire. Absolutely beautiful. And there are other examples from that period. But as I said, uh, you had the, the growth of a more literal understanding um, 
of the ceremonies. And this is one chap here, quite an influential figure, member of the Cluniac Order, Claude Duvert, and he wrote in the 17th century. He wanted a literal and um, an historical explanation of the ceremonies of the Mass. We have them here. Explication. Simple, literal, uh, de ceremonie de l'Église. Simple, literal, a historic. Simple, literal, and historical explanation of the ceremonies uh, of the Church. Um, let's, let's go back to Devert there. The influence of science and reason uh, played a part uh, in this um, understanding. Uh, you also had the beginning, and that's another story, I suppose, to some extent. It is connected with this, with the, this method, the, the literal method of understanding the mass. You had the produ gradual production of anachronisms in the 18th century. Um, uh, and the age of the um, Enlightenment. So Claude de Verde, a monk at uh, Cluny, he, he died actually in uh, 1708, and uh, he visited Rome. I was very impressed with the, the sermons of the liturgy. And then he wrote his book, as I explained, Simple Explanation, Simple Literal and Historic of the Ceremonies of the Church. And um, it was a provoked a reaction amongst uh, other people. Um, and it sort of went against the allegorical interpretation uh, of the Mass. So for De Vert, uh, the mystical, the symbolic interpretation of the of the liturgy. Um, he said it was from a you know from the medieval commentary tradition. It's pernicious, pernicious mystification and bad scholarship. So remember, he's talking about something which existed to, from patristic times and which we do find evidence of in the scriptures themselves. And he says that, you know, basically every ceremony serves as a simple, physical, hygienic convenience. It reflects a simple historical accommodation. Incense dispels bad odours. Immersion baptism is a hygienic practice meant for cleaning newborn babies. Chasuble was an ordinary Roman garment. The root scream simply amplified a, a lector's voice. Um, the mixture of water and wine in the chalice, you know, at the offertory, simple is a simple imitation of historic Jewish practice. And the mystical meetings are added later. Um, so he went on in that vein. Uh, And so, but as I said, he's not the first to apply these historical methods to 
the liturgy of, of the church. We can see this further on, well, late, earlier in the 16th century, and then goes into the 17th century. The example, you, you've got, um, well, this is later, actually a little bit later, slightly later, contemporary, if you like, Dom Edmond Martin and his Antiquis Ecclesiaritibus. Uh, very, I mean, there was a much good liturgical scholarship at that time too. And of course you had the um, the uh, Benedictines in Paris who worked very hard at this uh, and, and unearthed lots of the liturgical treasures and, and sources uh, for liturgy. But some of them might be a little bit too far in the condemnation and certainly did um, you know, the, the condemnation was, was very hard on the allegorical method. But anyway, Dom Edmond Martin um, says that, of course, earlier authors looked to mystical reasons to explain the Mass. And he says, actually, there was a style of writing which was distasteful to the learned men of our age. The learned men of our age. So, what is modern, what is now, this is this is what we should be looking for. We shouldn't look to the past in a sense. Uh, well, that's not entirely true uh, of the characterization of the, the literal school. Um, they did look to the past, but they, they thought just looking strictly from a rational approach, it's that sort of the symbolic and, well, in many ways the symbolic and the allegorical explanation had no relevance to the modern man. Maybe that's familiar in some ways to what happened after the last uh, ecumenical council, that repetitions in the liturgy and various symbols like the manacle, they had no relevance in the sense to modern man, not practical. In other words, it's a truism that uh, in, in many ways that uh, history repeats itself. Anyway, so Devers said that the true, the literal, the historical sense of a writing or a ceremony is that which the author institute had in mind, and it is often a figurative sense of symbol and of mystery. Um, he says that since we are seeking the reason for the institution, for example, the ceremony of the pastoral staff of the bishop, we would distance ourselves from the true sense of the church if we gave as a reason for institution the ordinary usage of support while walking. So he, he had, um, I think, some... Uh, he didn't entirely throw the baby out with the bathwater in regards to the use of symbols, but as um, one commentator, and these translations are from that uh, website which I mentioned earlier to you, it says that nevertheless that Devert had a, he had a bit, he sort of misread, uh, and it says willfully misread the liturgical text, it's cherry picking from the sources, and quotes the deafening silence in his writing about the witness of Christian tradition to the primacy of the spiritual sense and is, is really not to be forgiven as the author has said and can only be seen as a prejudiced effort at reconstruction for political purposes. I'm sure there's a thesis in that somewhere that would be a very interesting discussion to have if that's 
um, a true representation of diverse work, but he overemphasized the, the literal and um, unfortunately um, we have for example the Synod of Pistoia in 1786 and a lot of clerics who were present at that synod were sort of enlightened the liberal reformers who would have shared you know would have wanted to get rid of the patrimony if you like of the allegorical explanation uh, from you know which has its roots in patristics and further back and used throughout the Middle Ages. And it led to a very rationalist approach, a too rationalist approach um, to the sacred liturgy. It's not a question of saying that no liturgical scholarship is really important to understanding the historical aspects of liturgy of what we mean when we pray, but also the church has a journey through time and understanding of liturgy, understanding of the theology can deepen, ceremonies can be added, beauty uh, can be increased, prayers are added to, to point out certain aspects of dogma, all this goes on. But if you, and also looking at the liturgy from the viewpoint of the Passion of Christ, uh, this is a very, very long history. To say that that is of no significance, um, is uh, dismissive to say the least and to think that now uh, as they did at the Synod of Pistoia that yes we've got to get rid of this that and the other it doesn't apply um, and um, you know we can't have the canon quietly uh, that everything's got to be understood um, no the, the, I'm afraid that is um, only, we can only go so far with our understanding as human beings, but to think, therefore, we understand the text, therefore, that, that, that the text is a its purpose, is, is, um, it loses the point. The understanding of a text or of a prayer, um, we're addressing it to God in the first place. Like liturgy is primarily, firstly, uh, the worship of Almighty God, and, and then in a secondary way, it, it is to teach us that element of teaching and didactic element is there. But first liturgy is about the worship and the praise of God. And understanding is more than words. It goes at, at a much deeper level, uh, you know, with the sermons and gestures, which in the secondary sense can teach us and lift us up towards the primary ends of divine worship which also leads to our sanctification. So let's divert and despite, of course, um, maybe the waiting to serve the allegorical understanding of the liturgy, not everybody accepted what Claude Devert um, had written in his Explication. We have here another Explication, uh, which I have a copy of, Explication de prière et cérémonie de la messe. Explanation of the prayers and ceremonies of the mass. And this is by Pierre Le Bruin. And this has had, a, I think especially in France, it has had quite an, it had quite an impact in its day. Um, dates according to what I have here from 1726. And people 
uh, scholars, in, even right up to modern times, um, those who have an attachment and a great love for the traditional liturgy, uh, have said that, that this work is in many ways unsurpassed uh, in its depth of explanation of, of the liturgy and uh, of showing the beauty of the liturgy. Um, on the website, you can find these, some of these texts in translation. It's called Canticum Salomonis. Very, very good website, which I highly recommend. Um, there doesn't exist a, uh, any contemporary portrait or diagram, picture rather, I should say, of Pierre Le Bourne. Born in 1661, he died in 1729. He was a French liturgical scholar and uh, he was an oratorian. And uh, as I said, he didn't agree entirely with um, Le Brun. Um, and Le Brun was praised by uh, the Benedictine Dom Gouranger, who did a lot to bring the liturgy um, to the people, to the people to understand and to pray. Uh, the Roman liturgy. Um, one scholar, uh, actually a Benedictine scholar, another Benedictine, Jean Leclerc, great medieval scholar, said that, that this work, the, the, the explanation uh, of the Mass, was um, the masterpiece of Father Le Brun. And he, he actually says, and this is in the 20th century, that two centuries have passed. We must admit that nothing has replaced it, despite some admirable attempts. Um, another scholar, Abbe Coex, said that this work remains unsurpassed and who, whose amplitude and complexity is well expressed by the title. Um, Let me just, um, just read to you a little bit about this. Um, he explains you know, why he wrote the work. And he says, Having heard in passing more than 30 years ago from a very intelligent man, and besides well versed in antiquity, that candles were not originally used in the church for any other reason than for illumination, that idea struck me and set me on the track of the natural and historical meaning of the ceremonies. And I understood at that moment that all the other practices of the church must also have a primitive physical cause and reason for their institution. So he set himself to investigate the causes and the reasons. He says, I have drawn my conclusions, formed my opinions, taken my side and drawn up my system. He said that candles are used in church because they needed candles in the dark of the catechisms. Um, of course, Christian worship also took place in other places apart from the catechisms, which were cemetery, Christian cemeteries. Um, of course, they, they weren't only cemeteries for the Christians. Um, and he says once the primitive practice ceased, uh, they, they kept using them and um, then, of course, mystical meanings were given and so forth. But I think it's important um, to emphasize here 
despite his attachment to the sort of historical literal sense, he did appreciate the symbolic and he thought that the Boon thought that uh, De Vert was very arbitrary in how he uh, how De Vert exp explained the liturgy and his results were not uh, satisfactory that you should look that they should not exclude the witnesses uh, in the history of the church about the liturgy uh, and her tradition. So there we have Pierre Le Brun, who is still an inspiration for those of us who want to get to the heart of many of the aspects of the liturgy or take into account, uh, if you like, the liturgical movement and what it uncovered about liturgy. However, um, how do we sort of conclude this development? Because um, con the concentration, if you like, of scholars on the literal sense, it led to the demise of looking at the allegorical or really dismissing it. I mean, some great scholars and some great scholarship uh, in the 19th and 20th century is just for one example, um, Abbot uh, Cabral of Farnborough, uh, an amazing amount of liturgical work carried out at the Abbey um, under Cabral. We had the famous Henri Leclerc. Um, mm. While they were looking at, at the ancient liturgy, um, you know, some people were trying to dismiss the developments of the of the Middle Ages. And even Joseph Jürgen said that, you know, obviously um, thought that the allegorical explanation that she sort of went a step too far. Maybe there's some truth to both sides, but um, how would we conclude that we can't really dismiss the entire liturgical patrimony uh, of the allegorical way of looking at the liturgy as part of the liturgy, as one scholar says, as part of, not apart from, uh, the liturgy. So while we, it's right that we look at the texts of the liturgy, the sermons, the gestures, and we learn and are imbued with this, um, with the beauty of the liturgy too, that we, we're conscious that, that it's not all that it's a rational process, that there's a devotional aspects too, that, um, that the mysteries of redemption, which we find in the liturgy in, in, in spirit and, and in truth, the, the passion of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the um, representation of Calvary on the altar, that the allegorical method, uh, while it might not be to everybody's taste, that is true, it is an important part of not only our heritage, but it can inform us to some extent today um, about liturgy. And uh, as I said, there are scholars now who say we should look again and not be so dismissive of it. I'm going to end with two quotations for you. First one is from this book by James Jackson, Nothing Superfluous. Uh, he talks about William Durandus and his Rationale Divinorum Officiorum and about the great symbolism. And he says, of course, some liturgical scientists will dismiss this kind of explanation. They prefer to explain that the reason for the chalice veil was to protect the chalice from bat dung. The, the author says, I've heard this, there's this reason. But he says that, um, and therefore, because bat dung might not be a problem, that the veil 
and for the chalice is obsolete. He says there is some logic to it, and that if that's all there really is to the veil, then the heck with it, he says, or death to bats. But what if the veil is supposed to symbolise the stripping of the garments before the crucifixion? Then it has great meaning, but little purpose, as Guardini might say. So, so meaning it has many forms and not just the, the rational. And I'd like to quote from James Monty's book, A Sense of the Sacred. And he actually cites, and, and remember, I think we should remember um, that the allegorical uh, explanation of liturgy was also apparent in the Eastern churches. And in a 14th century Byzantine writer, Nicholas Gabasilas, his commentary on the Divine Liturgy from about 1350, cited by Monte's book, um, he says that indeed the whole scheme of the work of redemption, which is signified in the Psalms and readings, as in all the actions of the priest throughout the liturgy. So the whole of redemption is there. Cabasilas explains that this symbolism does not replace the literal meaning of the prayers, readings and rites of the liturgy. Rather, it serves as a meditative overlay that focuses the mind undistractedly upon the divine mysteries in preparation for Holy Communion. So I think that that points towards uh, the future, the, the allegorical uh, method of explaining the Holy Mass, which appeared in Scripture itself in patristic times and in the Middle Ages, that it, there is a value there. And certainly Father Jackson's book um, has also shown this and demonstrated this. So thank you very much, my dear brethren, for listening. Uh, at the conclusion of our conference on symbol and allegory in the sacred liturgy, and now let us conclude with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.